unjust judges. It's actually a problem that's plagued every person since the beginning of society. And it's sad to say that the United States of America, it's actually seen its unfair share of unjust judges. For example, it was back in 1857, that's when seven of our nine Supreme Court justices, they decided to deny the citizenship of a slave named Dred Scott. The same Democrat justices also decided that African Americans were not citizens of the United States, nor could they ever be. And without debate, the, that majority decision by our Supreme Court was completely unjust. And not only that, but it was entirely racist. And with that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that the Dred Scott decision was eventually overturned after the Civil War when a Republican majority Congress passed the 13th and the 14th Amendments to our Constitution. Praise the Lord for those leaders. Sadly, though, the Dred Scott decision wasn't the only unjust decision made by our federal Supreme Court. For example, it was back in 1973 when seven of our nine U.S. Supreme Court justices, they decided to grant pregnant women with the so-called right to terminate the life of their unborn babies. In order to justify their unjust decision, those unjust judges appealed to the shadows formed by emanations of the 14th Amendment as a basis for giving pregnant women the right to terminate the life of their unborn offspring. And while it's true that their unrighteous ruling was finally overruled and overturned just last year, well, it's also true that the initial ruling on Roe Well, it was an unjust decision that resulted in the death of more than 63 million babies. Completely unjust. Now, in light of these decisions, there should be no doubt that the judicial system here in America has been plagued with many unjust judges. And further proof of my point can be found in the fact that there's a long list of judges who have actually been busted throughout the years taking bribes. Proof of my point can be found in the fact that there's a long list you know, uh, of judges that include Rudy Delgado, the Texas judge who was found guilty of accepting cash bribes uh, to, to issue favorable court decisions. Uh, there's also a Pennsylvania judge named Mark Varela who engaged in a bribery scandal that involved the state's juvenile justice system. And then there's the Illinois judge named Thomas J. Maloney. He let mafia members murderers and gangsters all walk free, all for the right price. And listen, uh, we don't have enough time to consider the long list of judges who are destroying our judicial system simply because they've placed personal profit above their commitment to passing just judgments in every single case. Now, as we consider this problem with America's unjust judges, We can rejoice in knowing that there's coming a day when the just judge of heaven and earth will finally establish true justice here on this planet. And knowing that the Christians there in Thessalonica were themselves growing weary of the unjust judges who were, you know, corrupting their culture just for cash, Paul reminds his readers here about the just judgments of God by helping them to realize that the just judgments of God are are actually lawful. We also find here in our text today, Paul explaining how the just judgments of God are vengeful. 
And thirdly and finally, today we'll learn that the just judgments of God are fearful. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here we find Paul, he's reminding his readers about the just judgment of God. And as we make our way to the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I want to remind you that it was in our last study when we began our study of a sentence that actually spans six verses. Classic Paul. You know, Paul knew nothing about run-on sentences. But seeing how this pregnant sentence here in 2 Thessalonians 1 is packed with important information, I decided to divide our study of this one sentence into two sermons so that we can give attention to everything that Paul was trying to say. And, and with that being the case, we should back up and begin reading the context there at the beginning of this sentence from our text last week. I want to study then the second half of this sentence within its context. And so let's turn our attention now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to back up and begin reading at verse 3. Here Paul writes, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. One sentence. And then Paul writes this. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Now, here in our text today, we find Paul, he's shifting his focus from compliments to concerns. He began this sentence with a bunch of compliments and quickly moved to his concerns. And while he was quick to commend the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica for the way that they were exceeding in faith and expanding in love and enduring in patience, well, he was also quick to encourage them by reminding them about the day of judgment when the righteous judge of heaven and earth, he's going to judge those who refused to repent. He's going to judge those who rejected the gospel of grace. And with this as the focus, let's take some time to consider the righteous judgment that Paul is is referring to here in our text today. If you would notice with me again there in verse 6. Here Paul declares, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Paul here is expanding upon the promise of judgment that he presented in the previous verse. And just to be clear, it's that word judgment that's found in verse 5 that Paul is referring to when he talks about repayment. That word judgment, it's translated from a Greek word, which was used in reference to any decision, especially concerning justice 
and injustice in regards to that, that which is right and that which is wrong. And according to Thayer's, this word was also used in reference to a legal sentence of condemnation resulting in a damnatory judgment and punishment. Now, in order to better understand this sort of judgment that Paul is referring to, let's take a closer look at verse 6 where Paul again declares it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Now, uh, according to Paul here, the judgment of God that was mentioned in verse 5 is now being called here in verse 6 a righteous thing. Just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the phrase righteous thing, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of that which is right and right according to the divine law of the Lord. You see, God doesn't play the whole, well, that's your truth, but this is my truth thing. There is that which is right. And who gets to to determine that? God does. And so he is determining judgment to be a righteous thing according to what standard? According to the divine standard of the law. The same Greek word righteous, that's, you know, that's rendered righteous, it's used in a judicial sense in reference to a judge who rightly passes a just judgment onto others by declaring either their guilt or their innocence. I like the way that the scholars who created the Bible in basic English render verse 6. Here's how they render the Greek here. For it is an act of righteousness on God's part to give trouble as their reward to those who are troubling you. In other words, when God chooses to judge those who are persecuting his people, his judgment is actually an act of righteousness, which is to say that it's right. You see, the word righteousness, it actually means right all the time. Those who are righteous are right all of the time. Therefore, we can rejoice in knowing that the judgments of God are right all of the time because he's always righteous. The righteous judgments of God are lawful because they're always in line with his divine law. He will never make a decision that is in conflict with his divine law. And and to prove my point, I want to consider a few more verses that present us with the same basic truth. Uh, One uh, of these uh, scriptures is found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's verses 3 and 4 where Moses declares this. He says, I proclaim the name of the Lord ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. And I love this because, uh, you know, as I read these verses, we can take great comfort in the fact that the work of the Lord is perfect. The work of the Lord is always perfect. And according to Moses, the ways of the Lord are always just. We're never going to wake up one day and hear about a judicial judgment of God and think, oh, that's so unfair. What was he thinking? God is the righteous judge of heaven and earth, and he will always do what is right because he cannot deny his character. You see, God is an infinite being. And as an infinite being, he has no potential for change. We have the potential for change. We can change our minds. We can, we can be you know, someone different tomorrow. We can decide one thing today and, and decide against that tomorrow. And, but God is an infinite being, and therefore it is impossible for him to make a decision that is out of character, so to speak. 
his judicial judgments will always be lawful and therefore they will always be just. Not only that, but the Lord will never deviate from his righteousness. And I like the way that the psalmist puts it in the 119th Psalm. It's there where he declares, righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies, which you have commanded, are righteous and very faithful. Here in the lyrics of this song, we find the psalmist He's singing the praises of the Lord, and the reason why is because the Lord is a faithful judge. And what this means is that he will never waver from making upright and righteous decisions and judgments. In other words, there's never going to be a day when the Lord makes a decision that is unlawful. The proof of my point can be found in the angelic song that John records in the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, it's Revelation chapter 16 There the apostle John declares, I heard the angel of the waters saying, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God, almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Here in these verses, we find John describing the days during the great tribulation when the Lord will command the angels who have the seven bowls of wrath to begin pouring out those bowls of wrath onto the earth. And and the third bowl of wrath, as that that third bowl is poured out, that's when these angels start to sing about the true and righteous judgments of our God. In this way, they will eventually confirm for us that every punishment of God Every single punishment, even the the bowls of wrath that he pours out during the time of tribulation, all of these are righteous judgments that are completely in line with the divine law of the Lord. Not only that, but the same is also true for the judicial judgments which will be poured out at the great white throne of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it's in Revelation chapter 20. There the apostle John presents us with his vision again by declaring Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books." Now, here in in these verses, we find John describing the day when the righteous judge of heaven and earth will bring every unbeliever before the great white throne of Jesus Christ. And it's at this point in time when the Lord will judge them according to their works. He's going to judge them according to all of their works. The Lord has a record of every single sin that every unbeliever has ever committed. And there should be no doubt that he's planning to use the law as the basis for determining the guilt of every single person. But that being the case, we'd all do well to help every unbeliever we know to realize that they're eventually going to be found guilty before God. Proof of my point, well, it's found in James chapter 2. There James declares, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. 
In other words, those who attempt to justify themselves in the sight of the Lord by appealing to the laws that they've kept, they're soon going to discover that they're they're still guilty before God. You know, if if somebody stands before the, the great white throne judgment and stands before Jesus and says, well, I never murdered anybody. Jesus is going to say, true, you never murdered, murdered anybody, but let's look at this list of all the things that you did do. Let's look at all the sins that you are guilty of. Don't tell me about the, the sins you didn't commit. I'm judging the ones you did commit. And so while it's true that most people have never murdered another person, it's also true that we're all guilty of other sins like idolatry and deception, and the list can go on and on. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the Lord's perfect standard. And we all deserve to be judged according to the divine law of the Lord. That being the case, the righteous judge of heaven and earth, he he will be completely just on the day when he uses the divine law of the Lord to judge the sins of every unrepentant unbeliever. And there should be no doubt that his judgments will be completely just as he casts every unbeliever into the everlasting fires of hell. And it's for this reason that I encourage you to warn every unbeliever within your sphere of influence and beyond if you can. We need to help them to realize that the just judgments of God are going to be based on the righteous law of the Lord. And while it's true that the just judgments of God will be lawful, It's also true that the just judgments of God will be vengeful. Now, to explain what I mean by this, let's take a closer look at our text today. If you would look with me once again here at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, here we find Paul referring to the vengeance of the Lord. And I want to back up. I want to begin reading once again there at verse 6, where Paul declares it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, to, uh, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we take a closer look at, at these verses here, we must not fail to notice how Paul here is referring to the just judgment of God as vengeance. And while many tend to see vengeance as a negative motivation, Well, it's important for us to understand that the vengeance of the Lord isn't based on an unrighteous desire for revenge. That's typically what our vengeance looks like. It's typically an unrighteous desire for revenge, but that's not the motivation of the Lord here. The vengeance of the Lord is actually based on his righteous desire to pass a perfect punishment on every single sin. And in order to make my case, let's continue to consider how Paul describes the vengeance of the Lord here in our text today. And so look with me once again at verse 6, because there Paul declares, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Now, that word repay... It's translated from a Greek word which was used of the righteous recompense that results in retribution. And in this context, Paul uses this word you know, to, to describe the way in which the Lord will eventually avenge his servants by repaying those who persecute the church with the righteous retribution that they deserve for the troubles that they've caused Christians. That's right, those who trouble the church will eventually receive the just judgment that they deserve as our Redeemer returns to avenge those who suffered for the sake of our Savior. 
At the same time, we can also rejoice in knowing that the Lord will reward the Christians who were once troubled. I want to consider again how Paul puts it here in our text today. Look with me once again at verse 6. Here he declares it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and, notice, to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul encouraging the hearts of those who were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. He's you know, writing to those who had been troubled there in Thessalonica by unjust judges who were condemning Christians. And, and according to Paul, you know, those who suffer for the sake of our Savior today will eventually be rewarded with everlasting rest as we enter into the kingdom of Christ Jesus. In this way, we can see that the recompense of the Lord will not only result in the righteous retribution of the unrepentant, but the righteous recompense of the Lord will also result in everlasting rewards for those who trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, then this is something that we can rejoice in. After referring to the rest that we will receive in Jesus, Paul then shifts his attention to the vengeance of the Lord. And with this as the focus, I want to take a closer look at verse 8, because here Paul points to the day of judgment when the Lord will arrive in flaming fire and take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here in this verse we find Paul, he's describing the way in which the Lord will take vengeance upon those who chose to reject the gospel message by which we're saved from the wrath of God. The gospel message of of grace is the message about Jesus Christ, and this is the message that, you know, if you believe in it and trust in Jesus Christ, you're saved from the punishment that we all deserve. And God's going to take vengeance on those who rejected this gospel message. It'll help you to know that the word vengeance found there in verse 8, it's translated from a Greek word, which was used of a righteous punishment, which includes the vindication of those who were unjustly harmed. I like the way that the Lord describes his holy vengeance in Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's there where he declares this. He says, now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Wow. The Lord here is describing his vengeance as the righteous repayment that he will pay out to his adversaries. And so we see that the vengeance of the Lord is not only the vindication of those who have suffered for the sake of our Savior, but the vengeance of the Lord is also the righteous recompense for those who hate our Creator. Now listen, there's no good reason for humans to hate their Creator. Our Creator has done nothing but good for us. 
And those who hate our creator and those who would seek to destroy our God can rest assured that the vengeance of the Lord will be based upon the just judgment of Jesus. And it should come to them as no surprise because God has made this known within the hearts of every person. And I think that Paul puts it plainly in Romans chapter 1. There he declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. From this we can see that the ignorance excuse will not be an acceptable defense on the day of judgment. No one's going to stand before the great white throne of, of Jesus Christ and say, but I didn't know. I was the person living on the deserted island and I never had a Bible and not going to fly. Not going to fly on the day of judgment because God has manifest his truth within every person. Therefore, they're suppressing the truth. In order to reject the gospel of grace, a person must suppress the truth in their unrighteous desires. And knowing that the wrath of God has been revealed to those who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, we can rest assured that the vengeful judgment of Jesus, it will be completely just. And the reason why is because the Lord has given every single person an opportunity to be saved by faith in him. I like the way that Paul explains it in Hebrews chapter 10. It's verses 28 through 31. There, Paul declares, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping his Hebrew audience to understand that there is coming a day when God the Father will judge those who trampled the Son of God underfoot those who rejected the blood that he shed for our sins. This will be the first witness against them. And it's on the same day when God the Father will punish those who insulted the spirit of grace. This will be the second witness against them. That they knew within their conscience the Holy Spirit having convicted them of their sins. They knew they needed to trust in the gospel of grace. And yet they suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. And knowing that they've trampled the blood of Jesus underfoot, and knowing that they've insulted the spirit of the living God, God the Father will avenge the Son and the Spirit as he pours out his everlasting wrath. And it's for this reason... <clears throat> 
that Paul assures us that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now this brings us to our third and final point because listen, if it's true that the just judgments of God will be lawful, and if it's true that the just judgments of God will be vengeful, well then it's also true that the just judgments of God are fearful. To make my case, let's take a closer look at our text today. And and so if you would, let's look again here at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here we find Paul continuing to describe the judgment of God. And I want to take another look beginning at verse 9, because here Paul goes on to declare, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's pointing to this day when the Lord will finally return. And according to Paul, it's at this point in time when he will be glorified by his saints and admired by those who believe in Jesus. I can't wait for this day when we will stand in the presence of our Savior and just admire his glory. We will admire the glory of his power as we see the the deity of the Lord Jesus manifesting there on the throne with his humanity, the lamb that was slain there in the midst of the throne, and we will worship him in spirit and in truth. And as we consider this day, well, we tend to think about the word day as a 24-hour period of time, and when it pertains to the creation account, that most certainly is true. But the the same Greek word that's translated day here can also be used of a longer age. And in this case, it seems to me that Paul may have been referring to the millennial age of our Messiah when the Lord Jesus will establish his righteous rule over the earth. And in order to make my case, I want to consider a statement that the Apostle Peter makes in 2 Peter chapter 3. Here, he informs us that the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Here in these verses, we find Peter helping his audience to understand that when it comes to the just judgment of Jesus, one day is comparable to a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. And, and you know, in the most strictest uh, of interpretations, you know, Peter's effectively saying, you know, quit worrying about how long it's taking before Jesus returns. Because Jesus counts time differently, you know, in heaven than we count time here on earth. So, you know, quit, you know, quit being impatient about it. And, and that is effectively what Peter is saying here. And yet at the same time, it's also possible that the apostle was helping us to understand that the judgment day encompasses a thousand years, which we call the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, when the Lord will return and rule and reign over the earth. And if so, then this day, which lasts for a thousand years, will culminate then in the great white throne judgment of Jesus. And in order to prove my point, we should consider the way that the Apostle John describes this in in the book of Revelation. And with this as the focus, hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. 
As you make your way to the 20th chapter of Revelation, I just want to take a moment to point out that it's here in this chapter where the Apostle John is describing the millennial kingdom of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And you can read the whole chapter for homework if you want to know more about the millennial kingdom. Uh, but uh, it, it's um, at, uh, uh, during this time of the millennial reign when the enemies of our Savior, they're going to be locked away throughout the entire thousand years. And then at the end of Christ's millennial kingdom, you know, the Lord will you know, allow the devil to, to be freed and, and he's going to engage in a final deception. And then the Lord's going to cast the devil and his demons into the lake of fire. And, and then after that, he's going to judge those who rejected his grace. And I want to consider how John describes this scene here in Revelation chapter 20. So look with me there beginning at verse 11. Here John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. By the things which were written in the books... The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now here in these verses, we find John describing the way in which the millennial kingdom of Christ will culminate in the great white throne judgment when every unbeliever who has ever lived will then stand before the judgment seat of Jesus. And after the Lord presents them with the evidence of their many sins, the righteous judge of heaven and earth will then cast them into the lake of fire. That's what John tells us. That after Jesus judges them for every single sin they ever committed, he will cast them into the lake of fire. And if this sounds like an unfair or unjust decision, well, then I must ask, what is the basis for your belief? If you think this sounds unfair, what is the basis for your belief? In other words, who knows more about true justice? finite humans, many of whom can't define what a woman or a man is anymore. Finite humans who make a decision on one day and on the next day change, that, change their mind about it. We know more about true justice than the God who created justice. Finite humans know more about justice than our infinite creator whose incorrupt character is the foundation of the moral law. Listen, without the Lord, we don't have a universal basis for creating a moral law. And, and listen, without the moral law, there is no objective basis for establishing true justice. That being the case, we can be confident that, that the judicial judgments of the Lord will always be correct because without him, we would have no clue about what justice even is. 
At the same time, there should be no doubt in our minds that the just judgments of God, since we know that they are going to be correct, well, then they're also fearful. In order to make my case, let's make our way back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to take another look at verses 9 and 10. So look with me there at verse 9 where Paul assures his audience that these, speaking of the unbelievers who rejected the gospel of grace, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Now, uh, just to be clear about this, I believe that we're talking about the day of the Lord, the millennial kingdom of Christ, when we will rejoice together with our Savior here on the earth. And then at the end of the millennial kingdom, at the end of that day, so to speak, that's when the great white throne is established. That's when all uh, deceased unbelievers are then resurrected and brought before the throne of Jesus Christ. And it's at that point in time when Jesus will then begin to dole out the punishments that every unrepentant unbeliever deserves. And just to be clear, the word punished found there in verse 9 was translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to a judicial decision resulting in a sentence of condemnation. They will be condemned according to the law. And what this means then is that the just judgment of Jesus will result in a just punishment for those who rejected his free gift of grace. And while I must confess that I don't really have a clue about the way in which the Lord will weigh the guilt of every single sin, you know, like I, I don't know that, uh, that, that we can get in and say, well, okay, so for every lie, then it's this amount of time in hell. And for every, you know, every, you know, adultery, for every lustful thought, for every, you know, I, I don't know how he's going to weigh this all out. But what I can say for certain is this, that every unrepentant sinner is going to be sentenced with a just judgment. And with that, we should notice again there in verse 9 where Paul declares, these shall be punished, or in other words, these shall be condemned justly with what? Everlasting destruction. Now just to be clear, that word destruction, it does not mean annihilation. The reason I point this out is because there are some people who think that, that those who are cast into hell will be annihilated which is to say that they will cease to exist for the rest of eternity. However, the word destruction here in the original Greek, it actually speaks of that which exists in a ruined state. It does not speak of annihilation. It speaks of that which continues to exist in a ruined state. In order to further grasp the meaning of this word, we should consider the warning that Jesus presented to his disciples. It's in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. There the Lord declares, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Here in this verse, we find the Lord Jesus warning his disciples about the destruction of, which will occur in hell. And according to the Lord, hell is this place where the body and the soul will continue to exist in a ruined state. They will not be annihilated. They will exist in a ruined state. What this means then is that those who teach the heresy of annihilationism are actually deceiving the people who believe them. 
Not only that, but there are also those who think that death is, is the end of our existence. They think that, you know, once you die, it's all over. You're, you know, you're just worm food from there on out. These people are actually in for a rude awakening as they awake to find themselves in hell. In similar fashion, those who teach the doctrine of universal salvation are also deceiving people. And for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the doctrine of universal salvation is based on the belief that everyone eventually ends up in heaven. And they call this, you know, the ultimate reconciliation and whatnot. And, and one example of this can be found uh, at the Christian Universalist Association website, which defines this doctrine in this way. And I quote them, We believe in universal salvation, the idea that there is no such thing as eternal hell or annihilation because God has planned the universe to produce a positive outcome for all people of all times. Hopeful prophecies in the Bible point to a future time of universal restoration and renewal. The end of all things is a state of blessed reunion with God the Creator, not eternal separation, misery, or destruction. So according to these theologians at the Christian Universalist Association, there's no such thing as the everlasting destruction of unrepentant sinners. There's no such thing as eternal separation or destruction. The same people would have us to believe that there is no state of eternal separation for unrepentant sinners. And while it would be much easier for me to present this palatable position... You know, if I, if I believe that the Bible was actually presenting this theology, I would be more than happy to present it. And yet I can't teach this with a clear conscience knowing what the Bible actually says about eternity in the lake of fire. To explain my point, let's take another look here. I want to focus your attention once again at verse 9 where Paul goes on to declare these, remember speaking of those who reject the gospel of grace, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction. How long is everlasting? Well, it lasts forever. It's the same amount of time of those who enjoy everlasting joy in the presence of Jesus. It's the same word, everlasting. If we're going to limit the word destruction to something other than that which is everlasting, then we must also do the same for the time we spend in heaven with Jesus. Paul assures us, though, that these will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Paul was helping his audience to understand that every unrepentant unbeliever will eventually suffer the just punishment of everlasting or never-ending destruction, and, and they will exist in a ruined state for the rest of eternity as the Lord cast them into the lake of fire. And what's even worse than that, they will forever be removed from the presence of the Lord. They will suffer in a state of eternal separation from the presence of our Savior, never again to experience his love. Now, as we consider what the Bible says about the everlasting destruction and separation of those who reject the gospel of grace, there should be no doubt in our minds that the just judgment of God is a fearful thing. To imagine someone suffering in torment forever 
ought to strike fear in the hearts of every single person. And some might, you know, accuse me of being a hellfire and brimstone preacher, and hey, I'll, I'll accept the, the charges. Because I would rather you know the truth about where unbelievers end up than to smile real big and tell you everything will be fine and then allow people to wake up in eternal condemnation, suffering forevermore, just because I didn't want to hurt their feelings here. It's for this reason that I encourage you to warn every unbeliever within your sphere of influence about the everlasting torment which will eventually be experienced by those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, I also encourage you to examine your own conversion, especially in light of the warning that Jesus presents to his disciples. You see, it's in Matthew chapter 7, where the Lord Jesus declares this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, depart from me, you who live in such a way that is in conflict with the law of the Lord. From this we can see that there are those who claim to be Christian and according to Jesus these are even people that spent time serving the Lord. They did many things in the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah, they, they you know, maybe even evangelized, told people about Jesus. Some may have even cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And yet they never really repented of their sins. And as a result, they never really had a relationship with Jesus Christ. They were never truly covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And with that being the case, we'd all do well to examine ourselves, as Paul puts it, to see whether we're truly in the faith or not. We should test ourselves in order to make sure that Jesus Christ is truly dwelling within our hearts. And if we've truly placed our faith in Jesus Christ, then, well, there's great Joy, because we no longer need to live in fear of the Lord's just judgment. The reason I say this, well, it's because Jesus has already received the punishment that we deserve for every single sin we're guilty of. Jesus has received our punishment. God the Father condemned Jesus Christ for our sins, Christian. And in this way, Jesus then remains just while becoming the justifier of those who trust in him. In other words, Jesus is the just judge who then stepped up and settled our sin debt with the blood that he shed on Calvary. And now that he has, 
He's able to justify those who trust in him, thereby saving us from the punishment that we deserve. This is the gospel of grace by which we are saved. And this is the good news that we ought to share with those who are still living under the condemnation of the law. We need to help them to understand that if they reject the gospel of grace, then they are simultaneously choosing to pay for their own sins. And it's a payment plan that will last forever in the lake of fire. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Lord Jesus, he is the just judge of heaven and earth. And knowing that he will eventually judge the sins of every unrepentant sinner, we should warn them by helping them to understand that the just judgments of God will be lawful, which is to say that his judgments will be based on the perfect law of the Lord that we find in the scriptures. The just judgments of God will also be vengeful, which is to say that the Lord will avenge those who are harmed by the sins of every unrepentant unbeliever. And finally, the just judgments of God are fearful. And the reason why is because the Lord is going to pass a perfect sentence on those who have insulted the spirit of grace by rejecting the atoning blood of Christ's sacrifice. Knowing that the body and the soul of every unrepentant unbeliever will eventually be cast forever into the lake of fire, I encourage you to remember that the Father sent his only begotten Son to die for our sins upon the cross so that sinners like us could be saved from the everlasting destruction that we all actually deserve. Well, it's true that the Father sent his Son to die for us. It's also true that the Son has now sent believers to go into the world preaching the gospel of grace so that more sinners might be saved. With this as our goal, I encourage you in closing, let's go. Let's go and accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. Let's proclaim the gospel of grace so that every unbeliever within our sphere of influence might repent of their sins and trust in our Messiah so that they too might escape the just judgment of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.